This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The Yurok Tribe's brewery is taking big steps by partnering with another tribe to increase craft beer production and distribution in the Midwest. In Arizona, a Navajo entrepreneur revamped a piece of real estate to support a new coffee shop and a place where other Navajo business owners can network. And an Anishinaabe artist's floral blanket design features traditional food and a subtle and beautiful nod to treaty rights. That's on the menu today, our regular food show. We're back after the news. With National Native News, I'm Art Hughes in for Antonio Gonzalez. Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy signed legislation extending state recognition to Alaska's 229 tribes. All of the Alaska Native tribes are federally recognized. The approval comes as supporters were pushing a public referendum this fall to accomplish the same thing. The governor's signature means the referendum vote is unnecessary. The new law is mostly symbolic as there are no new legal provisions, but supporters say it paves the way for better consultation between the tribes and the state. Two influential U.S. senators are calling for an investigation into whether freedmen should receive federal benefits offered to Native Americans under the nation's treaty obligations. The hearing before the Senate Indian Affairs Committee is the first ever in that chamber to address the status of the descendants of black people enslaved by Native nations. Hawaii Democrat Brian Schatz chairs the committee. He acknowledged the difficult and emotionally charged nature of the discussion, but he says disagreements are not resolved in silence. So it is our goal today to start a respectful dialogue, to listen to different perspectives, both in a formal setting and informally among members of Congress, tribal leaders, and freedmen advocates, and to educate the committee and the public with informed accounts relating to our nation's two greatest failures the removal of Native peoples from their traditional homelands, and the enslavement of black people. Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski agreed with Schott's call for a review of federal policy. The Cherokee Nation is the only one of the five tribes of Oklahoma to fully recognize freedmen as citizens. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. told the committee the efforts by the Cherokee Nation to make amends with freedmen has made him a better chief. The Oglala Sioux Tribe is suing the federal government over inadequate law enforcement on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. The Sioux Falls Argus Leader reports the lawsuit lists a total of 33 tribal law enforcement officials to patrol more than 3 million acres of land. The tribe says those officers handle around 134,000 emergency calls in a year's time. That translates to as much as 80 hours of overtime for the six to eight officers working at any one time. The lawsuit says the reservation would need at least 140 officers to comply with Bureau of Indian Affairs standards. The Argus leader reports the lack of adequate law enforcement means citizens don't feel safe and businesses are forced to pay for private protection for their property and employees. Representatives from the tribe traveled to Washington, D.C. to discuss the problem, but the lawsuit says they were met with indifference. The South Dakota State Legislature also recognized the problem during this year's session with a resolution requesting the federal government fulfill treaty obligations by fully funding the tribe's police department. The first inaugural James Welch Native Lit Festival is underway in northwest Montana. The festival aims to create a space for indigenous writers to share their work. Aaron Bolton has more. 
The three-day festival in Missoula is named after Montana author and poet James Welch, who was born on the Blackfeet Reservation in 1940 and died in the early 2000s. Welch wrote several novels and one book of poems. His 1986 novel, Fool's Crow, about the arrival of white settlers in the Blackfeet Nation, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Fiction. The festival, named in Welch's honor, will feature talks by 19 indigenous authors from around the country, including multiple New York Times bestselling authors and Pulitzer Prize winners. The festival runs through Saturday. All of the talks will be streamed online. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Art Hughes. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature focusing on all things new and newsy in indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host, Andy Murphy from the Diné Nation. In this hour, we'll hear from three people making progress in the native food and restaurant scene. We'll hear from a Navajo restaurateur about her new coffee venture and a blanket that honors traditional food of the Great Lakes. I want to start with a tribally owned brewery that's starting a partnership to expand their operation and grow their own ingredients. The Yurok Tribe's Mad River Brewing Company already gained momentum by signing a stadium concessions deal with the San Francisco Giants. Now they're taking a step to take their operation to a new level. But you can join us too. Uh, what? kind of uh, native food programs or businesses are popping up in your native community. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And joining us from Blue Lake, California is Linda Cooley. She's the CEO for Mad River Brewing Company. She's a Yurok tribal member. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here. Um, so, San Francisco Giants, what, uh, the you, Mad River Brewing is um, sold at uh, the stadium. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, we are the first tribal beer, possibly beverage, to ever be in a professional sports stadium. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. It, um, I know you guys have a lot on uh, tap here. Is it um, all all uh, the brews there? 
We have three different bridles. We have our historic state park IPA. We have our undammed Huckleberry hard seltzer, and we have Steelhead extra pale ale. All right. So the names are are referring to a lot of important things. Um, why name beers after, um, you know, uh, the the dam um, controversies there in in your area? Yeah, so when we purchased the brewery, um, we were really looking at the products and relabeling and coming up with a seltzer. And we took the direction of naming our products after something that we're fighting for or that we need help with, things that are not getting out there and not being heard. Um, and we're in the process of a 20-year-plus fight on taking down the dams on the Klamath River in Northern California. Um, and we thought creating this seltzer named Undam would at least help bring attention to our fight for water and get it out in the hands of people who wouldn't usually hear the story, in the hands of people in Costco, Target, Walmart. Um, and then right after we named it Undammed, it was announced that our dams are coming down to be the largest dam removal in history. All right. Yeah, it's really interesting how um, uh, breweries, small breweries, um, are are really connected to the community that way. They name their beers after certain things or areas or sometimes even people um, that are from that community. I think that's one of the really cool things about like craft beer and microbreweries and stuff like that. Um, but uh, Linda, I, I mentioned a partnership. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this partnership with another tribe, right? Yeah, so we are partnering with Grace Snow Management, and they are a wholly owned corporation by the Iowa tribe, Kansas City, and Nebraska company. And our partnership is really to expand craft production and distribution. However, they also do a project with Smart Farming with John Deere and T-Mobile, where they're able to grow ingredients in just the best way possible. Um, so they are starting to grow some of our ingredients. So not only do we have a farm-to-table product, but we're also going to our traditional way of economics in Indian country, which is trade and relying on each other. Um, so on top of them growing ingredients, they will be building a brewery on their reservation where we will also be able to brew our beer. And what are some of these ingredients? We're looking right now at malt and then looking at hop strains um, and possibly more. And we're also looking at sharing ingredients with other tribal breweries or Native American breweries that are interested in the same thing. Right. And um, so so uh, getting ready to build a brewery over there in um, Iowa area and um it's also going to help with distribution right i mean you mentioned just in california your uh, the brews are at uh, a whole bunch of uh, local stores um is it going to be the same thing over in iowa yes it will be um we'll do the same thing with having distributors and really both of our long-term goal is creating a native american um category in grocery stores and we have uh, different certifications and labels we really are hoping to push our industry and having shelf tags letting people know ahead of time that they're buying a native american product so on top of distribution we're also trying to push this category and make space for all native american products in grocery stores 
All right. Is there there there's not a collective, right, of uh native breweries? Is there a group like that at all? There's a few people working on creating different things. Hmm. Um and right now there's so many in the lack of communication and COVID, but I know there's a couple tribes working on things, so we'll see what happens in the future. Okay. All right. And um, how, you know, by expanding your uh, the business here, um, how is that going to help the tribe and, and you know, benefit maybe even both tribes? Yeah, so definitely for over there in Iowa, they're going to have economics. It'll help with tourism. They're going to bring jobs to their area. Um, they're also going to have jobs like planting, building the brewery, planting the ingredients, working there. And then for us, it's really having our brand out in a larger market in a different area, creating brand awareness, and then telling our story. Um, getting these efforts out there and bringing to the mainstream that there are Native Americans out here still fighting for what we believe in. It's the overall um, acceptance of us in mainstream business. Got it. Um, I know when we talk about... Um, uh, alcohol and uh, we talk about uh, breweries and stuff like that. I mean, there's still this kind of uh, controversy in our native community about, um, you know, selling alcohol on the res or near the res in our native communities or um, making it and, and um, you know, having a brewery be part of your economic development. I mean, there's still, you know, pushback from the community uh, not wanting to have anything to do with uh, alcohol. Um, what is your response to, um, you know, that side of, um, you know, um, <laughs> that, that side of the conversation? Yeah, I think it's completely understandable. And I think it's, important that we all listen to people's stories and their feedback, whether it's positive or negative. And the reality is that alcohol is a problem for everyone. And we've been fed these stories that Native Americans have a lower tolerance and it's not accurate. It's an act of suppression. And our issue isn't alcohol. Our issue is generational trauma and trauma that we're still facing today. Alcohol is being used to subside it. And just as important it is is for us to sell the beer and tell our story. It's just as important for us to talk about balance. Um, I know specifically with our product, we really don't necessarily target Native Americans and our breweries not on the reservation. Um, we look at it as targeting people who are necessarily maybe even needing to hear about Native Americans as a vessel. Uh, I think it's really important that we start focusing on the trauma as opposed to these false narratives that we can't handle alcohol because even that is offensive. I think everything in balance and us standing together and having these conversations and realizing that we can't push ourselves in the little corner. One of the things we looked at when we were purchasing the tribe is California casinos are some of the largest beer sales in the United States. However, we're not making it. So all of that money is really staying out of house. So we looked at it as we're already selling it, everyone's selling it, why aren't we keeping this money in house? 
Right, and I think um, there's there's room to think about uh, craft beer as an art form. I mean, it's definitely part of, uh, you know, a big part of, um, you know, the culinary, um, you know, landscape. And uh, we're going to go to break in just a little bit. But uh, before the show, we were talking about a couple of other different uh, native breweries. Um, I mentioned Bow and Arrow down here in Albuquerque. Uh, there's a couple you mentioned in California. I mean, uh, then there's Quapaw's Brewery over in Oklahoma. Um, you know, this craft beer, uh, you know, sensation. <laughs> this is a, um, you know, craft beer is not going to go away soon. Is that, is that, um, what do you think about that? We were talking a little while ago about, um, you know, it's going to die down. You know, there's going to, there's going to be, you know, a, a cap of uh, uh, microbrews in our communities and then it's going to die down. What, what do you think about that? The popularity of craft beer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think beer is going anywhere. I think that either you stand out or you don't. And I think right now for us tribal and indigenous breweries, it's our time to have um, our story out there. And I think as long as it's a good product, there's still room. A beer has been around for a very long time, and I don't see it leaving anyone's hands anytime soon. All right. Um, we're going to go to break in just a little bit, but you are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. The Menu is our special regular feature show on Native news um, about food and food sovereignty. Um, you can join our conversation here. What, what kind of new um, food ventures and food projects are happening in your Native community? Call in and tell us about it. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be back. After Pope Francis apologized in Alberta for abuses at residential schools on the first leg of his pilgrimage across Indigenous Canada, Cree elders gifted him a headdress and placed it on his head. That sparked a controversy over who is deserving of such a high honor. We'll look at the history of gifting headdresses on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Hey, this is the menu on Native America Calling, our regular roundup of Native food news. I'm your host and producer, Need, uh, Andy Murphy. You can join our show by calling 1-800-996-2848. Are there any new culinary developments in your Native community? Tell us about it. Again, we're at 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to go back to uh, Linda Cooley uh, right now. She's the CEO for Mad River Brewing Company. Um, Linda, I wanted to give you a chance to let our listeners know um, where we can find more information about the brewery. 
Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at Mad River Brewing or our website, madriverbrewing.com. And we're on Twitter, Instagram, and also LinkedIn. All right, cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, all right, well, let's go on to uh, Window Rock, Arizona, where we have Blue Adams with us. She's a chef, entrepreneur, and director of Indigihub. She's Mandan, Hidatsa, and Diné. Welcome to Native America Calling Blue. Hi, <clears throat> thank you for the invitation. Yeah, no problem. I've been, of course, keeping an eye on all all kinds of stuff you're doing. I mean, this is what the um, uh, fifth, sixth, you know, restaurant <laughs> food food uh, business you've opened up. Uh, tell us about Skoden Coffee in Winderock. Sure. So. Skoden Coffee um, was actually originated in Provo, Utah, uh, with one of my other concepts, House of Fry Bread. But um, I ended, uh, ended up losing my executive chef, who was my brother, to COVID, and that put a strain on that concept, and then ended up having a surgery. So I had to close it down for a few months, and I thought, you know, I'd really love to open something like this back in my own community on the Navajo Reservation. I think it would be a perfect fit. And we started looking for a space and the Chihotso Indian Marketplace there where the flea market is in the capital of the Navajo Nation has these just beautiful kind of setting. Um, it's right there when you come into town and we thought it'd be a great focal point for people. So we just started kind of playing around with the idea and with my family's support, uh, my son who was here with his partner, um, they agreed to run it. So we, we just started to create the idea, well, let's open that scode in, but then let's also pair it with IndigiHub, which is another one of my organizations. And it's an organization that supports entrepreneurs. And we could build a model for shared resources. Um, we could uh, really focus on sustainable packaging and practices, you know, paper cups, paper straws, um, no single-use products, try to stay away from that. But really just wanted to create a beautiful environment for people to come, relax, have a drink, have a, um, some coffee in the morning, do some business, write some emails, even have access to a wireless printer. It was just the vision we, I wanted when I lived there because I grew up in Wonder Rock, Oh. As an entrepreneur there, it was very difficult to do business. Okay. All right. Um, so, you know, you mentioned uh, this uh, physical area there uh, in Windorock. You said it's a focal point. It. I, I know where this is. I saw it. I went to uh, the 4th of July fair uh, uh, in Windorock a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and... Um, it's it's right at the intersection. You know, there's a lot of traffic right there. There are um, some food vendors kind of parked along there. All the burrito ladies are there. Um, so it's a really it's a really cool spot. How? Um, well, what was um, the challenge for you to secure that space? I know in Navajo Nation, in a lot of Indian country, it's really hard to get like a business space because there's just no infrastructure. Absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's been pretty difficult. I actually started there with IndigiHub about five years ago. 
And even then, we had struggled to work with the management. Um, there's really no maintenance. The building is actually owned by the Navajo Nation, but they don't do a lot of maintenance or upkeep. So it, it really is in disrepair. Um, and then the, the current management has just taken over from um, the Allon um, Oil Company, I believe they are. So the current management has been much easier to work with. Um, they're really responsive. You can already see them improving the space. If we had a downtown, this would be it, right? It, it looks like a little downtown. <laughs> so um, I'm lucky to have gotten on the ground level of the new management. Um, they've already made improvements. They've allowed me to paint, install flooring. Um, I'm starting to upgrade the equipment inside. So uh, it really depends on the owners and the management. Are they supporting you? Are they supportive of a small business? Mm -hmm. I don't get that from the Navajo Nation, honestly. It, it was really difficult to get my um, get a correct checklist of what I needed to open. Like, I, there's no like definitive place you can go on the website, or you're just running from office to office and you're learning secondhand from the other vendors what you need. You need this permit, you need this food handler, you need this card, you need a pink and blue card. What is that? Okay, I'll go get one. But I did it, and we're open and operating, and we've, we've been so lucky and blessed to have such support from our community. I think it's something that really was needed, and it's almost becoming essential now. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, of course, location, location, the building is important. Uh, what else should a vendor know about um, establishing uh, a customer base? So one of the first things we did was um, established our presence on Google, Google Maps. Mm. We get a lot of uh, traffic flow through the area, and I notice, I always use Google Maps when I'm trying to find a local place to support. When I type in coffee or restaurants, the first thing that came up was Starbucks, of course. Um, so that was one of the first things we did. Um, I think Latte Abini showed up, but they've been closed for a little bit um, due to COVID. So that was one of the first things we did. We want to capture that traffic that is coming through town. And then um, absolutely Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Those are really important because that's kind of our new like word of mouth or digital word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, creating authentic stories that are relatable, that helps as well. And I always strive to make the space, I call it Instagrammable, mm -hmm. wanting people to take pictures and, and share the pictures and, you know, take selfies, et cetera. So every point in my cafe has a little point of interest where it'll make a beautiful picture. And then that's free marketing. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, um, I, I was watching on social media and it was like uh, one day there was a little bit of flooring and then immediately the next day there was like paint on the wall. And then like two days later, you're like, we're open. <laughs> and it was, it's uh, amazing to see how fast or, um, you know, it probably didn't feel fast for you. But uh, on, on this side, just watching on social media, it, it seemed really fast that you opened this up. And I thought it was really cool that um, you were able to do this. And, and uh, you also mentioned a business 
model. Um, uh, can you share a little bit about this business model and maybe how um, it would be uh, beneficial for the greater community, not just you as an entrepreneur, or you and your son? Absolutely. So um, real estate can be pretty expensive, especially in indigenous communities because there's so little of it. It drives the prices up. Mm-hmm. So how we can kind of compensate from that is sharing the space. So and it's our building is split in half. Um, Indigihub rents front half, which is a co-work hub. It provides supportive services for students, uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, individuals that just need access to Wi-Fi, basic business supplies, a desk space, you know, for a couple hours. And then the back half, the kitchen, um, that's Godin. They they um, pay half the rent on that. And that reduces our overhead. It reduces our startup capital, et cetera. So that's one of the models I want to create is just sharing resources. And we also have um, a little microgreens um, startup that wants to grow microgreens because it's it's a small space you need for microgreens. It's a small footprint, and they just want a place to start. So we can provide um, a temporary space for a lot of different entrepreneurs, especially digital entrepreneurs. If if you're digital and you just need a desk and Wi-Fi, that's what we want to provide. <clears throat> so sharing resources is one of the models. Also sustainability uh, with Skoden. You know, we try to we're sourcing locally. We have we're right now we have uh, coffee from uh, Labah Drive in Gallup. He's a, a a local coffee roaster, which I think is awesome. He's a Navajo gentleman. Um, so we source our coffee for him for our hot coffees. Um, everything we do, I said, I I think I mentioned um, we're trying to shoot for compostable products because the Navajo Nation they generate almost. 300 million tons of waste per year, but we don't have operating landfills. So we try to be very cognizant of how much waste we create. And if we do create waste, we want to make sure it's breaking down. So, you know, it's not taking up space in in landfill and we're we're just thinking about the environment. And then the quality of our our drinks that we offer. um, We use high quality syrups. We do have sugar-free options. We use um, honey or agave where we can. We use alternative milk products, et cetera. Um, Just being aware of, you know, what are we serving to our customers? Because that's as important. And that's that regenerative model, which I think is based in indigenous principles, is you see a holistic picture, and that means where you source your product, how you present your product, and how it reaches the customer, and considering even their health. Okay. Awesome. And, um, you know, there, there's, is there a Starbucks there in, uh, Window Rocket? I don't think so. Right. There is. There oh, there is. There is a Starbucks in the bashes at Window Oh, <laughs> okay. And they use plastic cups and they mm. use plastic lids and they bleed in the Um, uh, how do you, uh, do you see Starbucks as like a competitor or, um, how do you compete with the Starbucks and, um, you know, any, any other coffee you can get at, uh, the gas stations? So uh, absolutely. They are a competitor, but competition breeds innovation, right? So Mm -hmm. how do we set ourselves apart from them? 
one, they're in a bashes. It's a grocery store. There's not a lot of thoughtfulness in their environment. So we wanted to make our space beautiful and inviting and unique to the area. So I, I hired my son, who's a muralist, and he did a beautiful mural on the wall. We think about we're very you know aware of the music, the volume of the music, put plants in there for you know air quality and just you know, providing books and literature, providing a, a space for community to come together and, and discuss ideas and you know access um, education and knowledge around business. We're going to run workshops there, and we also want to try to do some you know open mic, et cetera. Mm. Starbucks can't provide any of that. So that's our niche. That's our uh, specialty. And we're hoping that's what sets us apart. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it is um, election season on the Navajo Nation right now. And uh, I know this is a really big question, um, And uh, but I, I want to ask you, what would you like Navajo leaders to know about creating opportunities for small uh, business? Wow. <clears throat> There's so much <laughs> I can say about that. Um, we need support. My, the microeconomy often gets overlooked, but it's really the foundation for the larger economy. None of these larger businesses can retain revenue unless they're investing into the microeconomy. And what I mean by that is you can build a million dollar, a billion dollar hotel, whatever you want. All of those supportive services are going to come from off the reservation. Linen services, sometimes security services, construction services are often sourced off reservation, so you're not retaining any of those dollars. If we can support micro-businesses that are trying to provide professional services, that would be a huge step to having a robust economy. Um, listening, you know, having us at the table, invite us to the table because unless you've been through trying to open a business, in an indigenous community, you really have no idea. I can say that because I went to business school. Yeah. I didn't learn any of this. This is like school of hard knocks, like going through the process, getting shut down everywhere, not finding support. Like they will tell you, if you don't do it this way, we're going to shut you down. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it this way, we're going to shut you down. If you don't have this, we're going to shut you down. Nowhere in there have I had a conversation that says, Ask me, I'll support you. I'll show you how to do it. Here, go here. You know what I mean? I haven't had that support as an entrepreneur. So that's one thing that we can address. Mm -hmm. Number two, we need to strengthen ourselves um, and what we export and what we, and, you know, what we import because small businesses like markets, gas stations, um, et cetera, they get charged a higher uh, wholesale price point than our um, border town counterparts. Sometimes, you know, we're paying 60 cents more for a product than somebody in the border town. And they say it's the distance, it's travel, you're rural. We're right on the edge. It's, it's not, it shouldn't make that much of a difference. So advocacy for us as small business owners in that wholesale space would be tremendous as well, or even supporting our own manufacturing, our own food suppliers, that's one thing that I'm passionate about is relocalizing the food system and supporting 
food producers locally would help drive costs down on our food. We may, we create such beautiful food, you know, sheep, um, cattle. We have gardens everywhere. Farms are popping up everywhere. We export too much of that and we're importing just too much garbage. We need to reverse that. So support for the microeconomy, support for food producers, I think those would be my main conversations. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, We're going to go to a break in just a couple of moments here. But um, listeners out there, you can join our conversation. Uh, We're at 1-800-996-2848. Are there any new native businesses, uh, food businesses in your native community? Are there any new um, maybe food uh, sovereignty programs happening? Tell us about it. Again, that's 1-800-996-2848. We're also uh, looking around on our social media, so you can comment there, too. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be back. This show is supported by the return of FX's Reservation Dogs, the original comedy from Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi. This season, Reservation Dogs continues to follow the favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma, with each of them trying to forge their own path in hopes of one day making it to California. FX's Reservation Dogs Season 2 premieres Wednesday, August 3rd, only on Hulu. Welcome back. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. I'm your host and resident foodie, Andy Murphy. There's still time to join our conversation about what's new and newsy in the realm of Native food. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to go back to uh, Blue Adams right here. She's a chef, entrepreneur, and director of Indigihub. And she's. Uh, we were talking about her new coffee shop uh, just over in Winter Rock um, called Skoden Coffee. Um, so Blue, uh, let's. Um, uh, I, w- I want to wrap up here with you, but uh, I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know uh, to where uh, where we can find Indigihub, where we can find uh, Skoden Coffee on social media. Absolutely. So we are at Indigihub and at Skoden Iced Coffee, or no, excuse me, Skoden Coffee. Um, on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. All right. Um, might start up a Twitter, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Otherwise, scodencoffee.com uh, and indigahub.com. All right, cool. Um, and uh, I want to ask you really quick uh, before I let you go, um, what would your advice be to um, folks who are thinking about, uh, you know, jumping into um you know, this process of opening a small business on, uh, the, on Indian country? Um, I would say um, understand it's hard work, first of all. It's a lot of work. Be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about it, you're going to want to give up because it is hard. It is difficult. It's hard. But it is doable. And there's a lot of enjoyment and um, happiness from it from building your own concept from the ground up. Two, make sure you have support and understand you're not doing it alone. 
I hear that a lot. You know, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps. No, you didn't. You had hundreds, if not thousands of people helping you along the way, including your customers. So be aware of that. Be aware you're, you're going to need to build a network that is going to support you. And you can't do this without that support, and especially the support of your customers. So don't get, so don't get lost in that. Don't get a big head. <laughs> <laughs> but also be creative. Um, as indigenous people, it's really hard for us to get access to capital, especially if you're if you're living on the reservation. You know, you you don't technically own your land. You can't have a mortgage. That's often the basis for a business loan, etc. Be creative. There's really um, other ways. Like for me, I often buy used or discounted equipment. You know, I use I trade cooking services or I do odd jobs here and there to build up capital so it doesn't pull from my other um, projects. I'm not ashamed of any kind of work that that um, creates money or mm-hmm. creates favors from people that are willing to help me. If I don't have a skill, I'll trade what my skill is for their skill, things like that. Use the barter economy um, and try not to go into debt. Do absolutely anything you can not to go into debt until you're in year two or five and you need to scale or you need to build. All right. All right. Um, well, that was um, Blue Adams over in Window Rock, uh, um, uh, uh, serial entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so I'd like to go over to our other guest. We have uh, Sarah Agatone Howes over at the Fond du Lac Reservation in Minnesota right now. She's the CEO and artist of Heartberry. She's a Anishinaabe Ojibwe. Welcome to Native America Calling, Sarah. Bonjour. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. Uh, so I wanted to bring you on the show because you created a very beautiful blanket. Uh, since this is radio, could you uh, give us a, 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 a paint us a picture of this blanket here? The Good Life blanket is um, knitted right in the studio, and it's um, 100% wool, so it's like uh water like blue and like a navy blue light blue a white blanket and it has um right in the center is a canoe and out of there is our wild rice is coming out of there and like all around the blanket are these really um sharp geometric designs which are replicating our um, spears that we use to spear walleye and then right next to them is the walleye spears. And then throughout it is kind of this meshy looking kind of design, which is to represent the nets that we use to uh, also gather fish. And then I always have to put um, my signature floral designs on there. So we have some of our beautiful florals on there also. Right. I'm looking at it right now. And um, I'll share this photo on our Instagram. Uh, we're at Native America Calling on Instagram. Um, and then, you know, Native America Calling on Facebook. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm looking at it. And uh, it's really, it's really beautiful. Um, you know, it's, it has a really cool colors. Um, and uh, this is a blanket for uh, eighth generation. Um, tell us about that partnership between eighth generation and yourself. 
I've been a part of the Inspired Natives project for almost eight years, um, which is a business capacity project for Native artists, and set out right from the beginning, like, I'm going to be the star pupil of the Inspired Natives project, and it worked really hard um, to learn a lot, as much as I could from this experience, um, and they've really been amazing in helping to build my business while their business has also grown, and um so it's been just incredible to be a part of this effort to really take back the wool blanket that like these designs um, and this way of taking our designs to market is something that we can do as native businesses all the way from design thought all the way down to production and it's super exciting to be a part of that movement um, and that's what this blanket is a part of. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, you know, of course, these are traditional foods from your area up there in the Great Lakes. Um, why, why choose, um, you know, to honor food in this way? So the wording in our treaty here, which is the 1854 treaty, says that we retained our rights to our Minopamadaziwin, which means our good life. And a lot of times when we're thinking about treaty rights, um, we're talking about hunting, fishing, and gathering. And I really want to reinforce with, you know, the stories we're telling in our blankets that we have the right and um, the rights and the ability to access to our food, our water, our woods, our land, to gather and to build that good life, that that's what our ancestors wanted for us, was us to have access to um, to the fish, to the berry patches to the wild rice, but also we have responsibility to take care of that. And, um, you know, I really want to take that into this chance to tell that story with the blanket um, because we really have worked, you know, our, our ancestors and our grandparents worked really hard to retain that good life for us. And I really want us to uh, take it and keep going. Right. Uh, so, you mentioned uh, treaty rights, and even before the show, um, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, just what what uh, kind of stories and what kind of history is in this blanket. And um, can you can you tell us about um, your your nod to treaty rights and uh, having access and those important issues we have to deal with uh, when it comes to our indigenous food? Uh, tell us about how that's woven into the the blanket so the walleye you know really like controversy over our ability to spear and fish um, is really centered right here in Minnesota and Wisconsin um, and went all the way up to the Supreme Court and I mean I was a kid I remember you know the violence and the hate that was flew back and forth between you know people at the landing you know assaulting people who are out doing traditional harvesting and so to you know grow up and watch that and be scared, but also be really proud of people who fought that uh, and fought for our right to be able to do that. And now as an adult, to be able to do that is is such a gift and um, really want to just reinforce that these are, this is like what builds our good life. It's like moving our bodies. It's, uh, you know, eating those kinds of foods. And, you know, the wild rice is really, really important to us because really, when the rice is healthy, we're healthy. It's really like an indicator of the whole ecosystem. If the water's healthy, the rice is healthy, we're healthy. And so 
so that is just like this, um, you know, this apex part of our, um, our good life. And so that's why I really think that I just want to keep using these visual, beautiful things to reinforce those stories. Cause that's what I was told what these designs are for. Like when you see a floral, it's really beautiful, but it's meant to teach you about a plant, a medicine, a food. That's what it's for. And so I take that responsibility seriously. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about uh, uh, Ojibwe floral? I mean, it's a it's a very distinct, of course, uh, design. Um, it's for, like you said, storytelling. But um, you know, can you tell us any more about uh, you know the the design? Well, what I was told was that when when people would used to quill and bead, um, you know, you know these utilitarian objects that it was to remind us about those foods and medicines. And then, especially during the time when we didn't have access to them or they were outlawed, it was kind of like this memory device for us to remember. This is what this leaf looks like. This is what the bud of this plant looks like. Mm. Um, and you can put so much in there from like this is what a bud looks like when it's time to do this or that and um you know time to harvest this or time to stop doing that <laughs> and so i think like those kinds of visual reminders are things that we use to tell stories forever from birch bark to quill work you know um and so a beadwork has really taken that you know and i think we think of ojibwe floral beadwork but we've been making these designs for a long time before there was beads. and so i'm just taking this same you know evolution of our story to a blanket, to wool. Um, and that's just what we've always done is adapted um, our traditional designs, but still keeping who we are. And that's, um, I love to be a part of that place where we're, we get to be all the things mm -hmm. at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, to have it at eighth generation, um, is also pretty special too. You you were talking about, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, re reclaiming some of these designs using, um, you know, everything we've kind of learned in our community. But um, you know, eighth generation. Uh, how do you feel about um, uh, your design going especially towards this company and um, uh, being a part of their story? I feel so grateful to be able to work with a native company to create um, products for everyone. I think that it just reinforces the idea that we are sovereign and that we're capable and we can do our own things and that we don't need non-native companies stealing our designs or doing us favors for exposure, that we're competent artists and um producers and CEOs and um, I really love to be a part of this like movement of thriving and prosperity. I think it's really exciting and both having business, both of our businesses starting out in our kitchens <laughs> and now Eighth Generation is probably like the biggest native company in the country. So it's really exciting to, to watch that grow and to be a part of that growth. Um, and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's amazing. Right. Uh, you know, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, a, a couple of uh, moments ago about uh, wild rice. You were talking about how it's just an indicator for the health of the environment. Um, how how healthy is the rice now? Well, you know, it's been 
it, you know, it goes up and down mm-hmm. out every year. But, um, you know, there's been a big movement in our community to really reseed the wild rice beds and take care of them. And it's been, it's really great. The, the thing is, like, we have to harvest the rice, too. Like, we go out there and when we're harvesting it, we're reseeding the lake at the same time. So we're a part of that that ecosystem, which I think is really um, beautiful, not forgetting that we play a role. And so I really um, learned how to do that as an adult. And my kids have gotten to learn how to go wild racing. And it's a really important part of our our family, my, my extended family. And, um, you know, just a precious, precious, like, gift. Because once you go out and you go wild racing, you will never waste wild rice ever again. Because you're like, I knocked every single kernel of that rice. (laughs) And so now you know why. This is why we use this as a gift in, like, ceremony, right? Because, like, what a precious, precious gift to give. And, And I just feel so fortunate to be able to be a part of that that yeah. cycle. <laughs> and it's a delicious gift too. Like wild rice is like one of my favorite, you know, starches. Um I I keep a couple of bags in my <laughs> in my pantry uh at all times and I'm glad that there are uh businesses out there um you know to make that available to folks like me down here in New Mexico uh to have some of that. Uh, to share in, um, you know, some of those flavors and really to to learn about um, how you guys do it up there. Uh, (laughs) uh, Sarah, we're going to go wrap up in just a little bit, uh, but tell us where we can find you and your art and um, all that good stuff. Absolutely. So um, heartberry.com, and it's spelled just like you'd think, um, heartberry. And then I'm on Facebook, Instagram, doing really goofy stuff on TikTok usually. (laughs) And then you can just find me on the Google. All right. All right. Thank you for that. So that is all the time we have for our show today. Catch the menu on Native America Calling at the end of every month. I'd like to say thank you to our guests, Blue Adam, Blue Adams, Linda Cooley, and Sarah Howes. We'll be back next week with another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics, starting with Monday's discussion about the controversy over Pope Francis being gifted a headdress from Indigenous artists or Indigenous elders in Canada. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Sol Traverso is our associate producer. Marino Spencer is the engineer. We had engineering help this week from Roman Garcia. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. And Tony Gonzalez is the anchor of National Native News. Charles Sather is our uh, chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm producer and host Andy Murphy. Support by the Institute of American Indian Arts, the birthplace of contemporary Indigenous American art, and the educational home for esteemed and innovative artists, writers, filmmakers, performers, and leaders, making history since 1962. Accredited by the Higher Learning Commission, IAIA offers undergraduate degrees, graduate degrees, and certificates. Info on IAIA's 60th and the IAIA Museum of Contemporary Native Arts 50th anniversaries at iaia.edu.
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.